Come see the new quiz show, Go Fact Yourself, with special guests Andy Richter and Fresh Air's Tanya Mosley. It's March 23rd at the Crawford. Get your tickets at las.com slash events. LAS Studios. Last spring, a website called China Military Online, a news portal affiliated with China's Central Military Commission, or CMC, freaked out over Elon Musk. The article in question was about a SpaceX launch and how it was lugging 53 Starlink Internet satellites into low Earth orbit. Quote, The program's unchecked expansion and the company's ambition to use it for military purposes, the article's author wrote, quote, should put the international community on high alert. So that's one thing. But there's another article. This one's in the Financial Times about how U.S. intelligence also freaked out. Granted, nothing to do with Elon or SpaceX. Instead, it was after China tested a nuclear-capable hypersonic missile that circled the globe. An unnamed source is quoted saying, quote, We have no idea how they did this. We have seen a, a weaponization of, uh, of space from uh, China and Russia. That's Lieutenant General Stephen Whiting. He was speaking during a joint hearing from the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on International Development and the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Strategic Forces. We know they have multiple ground laser uh, systems which could blind or damage our satellite systems. But let me be clear, even with this uh, weaponization of space, we do not want a war uh, to extend into space, and we want to do everything possible to deter that. So here's the thing. I've been reporting on aerospace for 25 years. Let me tell you, Almost any time you talk to military people, space isn't just the final frontier. It's the final frontier of war. And what do we know? We know the U.S. and China are the world's leading superpowers. We know they both have robust space programs. And maybe the two countries will go to war someday. Well, in that case, I find it hilariously ironic, as we're about to see in this episode, that China's space program owes a mega debt to the U.S. government deciding to cut off its nose despite its face. Or, as Theodore von Karman put it in his autobiography, quote, the United States, in effect, gave Red China one of our most brilliant rocket experts for no really good reasons. I'm M.G. Lord. This is season one of L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge.
Red Scare, McCarthyism, that mid-century social mania about communists in our midst. It was an incredibly moronic, if mildly understandable, moment in American history. Also, one of the United States' more shameful episodes, one that destroyed a lot of careers, not to mention a lot of lives. In the last episode, we saw Frank Molina dogged by the FBI all the way to Paris, where he remained a political refugee for the rest of his life. The American embassy was instructed to refuse Molina's passport renewal. He basically couldn't return to rocketry. He couldn't pass the security questionnaire without perjuring himself. Still, Paris, art career, je ne sais quoi, you get the idea. No, Molina was hardly the squad member who had it worst. That honorific, as we're about to hear in pretty tragic detail, regrettably goes to the brilliant mathematician Chen Shushen. Let's start at the beginning, across the Pacific. Chen, his, his Chinese name will be pronounced Chen Xuesen. So Xuesen will be his first name. And his last name is uh, spelled uh, when he was in the U.S., T-S-I-E-N, Chen. That's Zhou Wang. He's a professor of history at California State Polytechnic University at Pomona. He was born the year when the Chinese dynasties ended with the Republican Revolution in 1911. So he uh, grew up in the time of change in China, and also when China was under foreign threats, especially from Japan. Chen did his undergraduate studies in Shanghai in mechanical engineering. He did so well that he won an extremely rare fellowship to study in the United States, to study aeronautics at MIT. After finishing his master's degree there, he moved to Caltech and ran into the suicide squad. The people he found most connected to were those excellent young scientists and engineers, including um, two especially, Frank Molina, and another student, Sidney Weinbaum, who was actually a refugee from Ukraine, uh, a Jewish foreign student. Sidney Weinbaum, scientist, mathematician, also former head of professional unit 122, part of the Pasadena section of the Communist Party. We'll come back to that in a bit. So he came to know uh, both Frank Molina and Sidney Weinbaum and other people in that circle. They shared a strong interest in classical music. So they will actually go to hear a concert by the LA Philharmonic. But also they would, you know, uh, sit in the room, probably at home of either Molina or especially Weinbaum to listen to classical music uh, records. And they may have played some uh, music together, a little band. The point is, Chen joins the gang. He's the numbers guy. In the lab, he brings a level of mathematical expertise none of the rest can match. So he co-authored several path-breaking papers with Theodore von Kármán on aeronautical engineering, including the uh, studies of objects in space, including supersonic flight. At the same time, he was involved with Malina's group, uh, in the suicide squad, trying to make a practical uh, rocket. 
And both sides of his activities from that period came to fruition during World War II. By December 1942, Von Kamen was able to get a security clearance for H.S. Chen, for his favored student, because he thought Chen was so talented that he would be able to make contributions to the U.S. war effort. Uh, he was, of course, all for the U.S. war effort because, for one, he thought that the U.S. war effort will help China to defend itself against the Japanese invaders. And, of course, he was against the fascists, against the Nazis. In the next seven years, Chen really does seem to go from one success to the next. He teaches at Caltech. He becomes a section chief at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He's running research analysis at JPL in the making of the Private A rocket. Then he's asked to join an advisory board to help the Air Force plan its R&D. From there, Chen heads back to MIT, where he becomes their first Chinese-American scientist promoted to full professor. He's one of the youngest full professors in the U.S., it's a string of accomplishments that seems to have no end. He then was offered the chair as the Goddard Professor of Aeronautics, sponsored by the Guggenheim Foundation. So the Guggenheim Foundation funded two centers, and both centers offered him the directorship. So that showed how prominent uh, he was in the field of aeronautical engineering. Finally, in summer 1949, Chen returns to Caltech to take up his new post, chair of the aeronautics department, funded by the Guggenheim Foundation, which is around the same time our very successful, brilliant, patriotic scientist decides to go full red, white, and blue. Chen files a declaration of intention to become a U.S. citizen in Boston in April 1949. Unfortunately, however, he won't get much further. By 1949, the Red Scare arrives at Caltech. Any friend of Sidney Weinbaum, such as most of the Suicide Squad, falls under suspicion of being a communist. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, Sometimes, you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. There were quite a number of dramatic events that took place from about June 1949 to June 1950 that dramatically changed his life. This is Zoyu again. So when we left Chen, he had accepted a new job as the Goddard Professor of Aeronautics at Caltech with little idea that everything soon will go to hell. So when he came back to Caltech, one of the people he quickly reacquainted with was Sidney Weinbaum, who was working at the JPL as a research scientist. So Weinbaum became a JPL scientist partly on the recommendation of Chen himself, 
who wrote a strong recommendation letter for Weinbaum. At that time, Weinbaum was under FBI investigation because at the beginning of 1949, there was an informant from JPL who went to the FBI office in Los Angeles and uh, voiced his concerns over the loyalty of some of the people who had worked at JPL that he personally knew. That informant, as we learned previously, was the director of JPL. This informant said he had questions about Weinbaum's loyalty. And in that same interview with the FBI, the informant said that he also had doubts about loyalty of H.S. Chen. Now, in the FBI's files, Zoyu says, there was a report from the Los Angeles Police Department where a detective reported infiltrating Weinbaum's group, and one of his tasks was to scribble down the names of new members. And so on that list of new members of the U.S. Communist Party in Los Angeles were indeed the names of Weinbaum and Chen. And now they had to, of course, by law, with both the evidence and this informant's report, they had to launch investigation first on Weinbaum. And then they also launched the investigation on Chen. So in a pretty small window, Weinbaum loses his position at JPL and his security clearance. Chen would have known his friend Weinbaum was in trouble. The FBI asked him later to testify against Weinbaum, and Chen refused. Now it's interesting. Chen was perceived at Caltech to be almost anti-communist. Remember, he's the patriot, the aspiring citizen. For all intents and purposes, it seemed like his future was in the United States. He already had a green card. Also, his father-in-law was a former nationalist general who'd been a military leader of the nationalist government that would go on to fight communists. And also, remember during World War II, At Caltech, he also had trained a large number of U.S. military personnel as graduate students. So for that period, probably from the late 40s all the way to 1949, he had thought that he will stay in the U.S. and had his future in the U.S. But all these events that I mentioned, that um, the removal of clearance of Weinbaum, Uh, the founding of the PRC. PRC, the People's Republic of China, founded in 1949. And the increasingly uh, tense political atmosphere in the U.S. with the rise of McCarthyism, with the tightening of security rules in the U.S., must have made him having second thoughts about whether to stay in the U.S. or to return to China. So from everything we know at this point, he may have been leaning toward returning to China by the early 1950s. In June 1950, the FBI knocks on Chen's door. We'll call this phase one. First, the FBI came to interview him. And then shortly after that, he learned that his clearance was removed. You know, it becomes a witch hunt. This is Yan Luo. Yan is producing a film about Chen called Rocket's Red Glare. So he lost the clearance, not only that, then he immediately 
from Chinese point of view, it's just a face. You lose face. You know, you you're not criminal, but、uh, they treat you as a criminal. So you lost the sense of staying here. I mean, imagine the shame involved for anybody. You move away from home at an early age to a place where most people don't look like you, don't speak the language you grew up speaking. Also, a place of massive prejudice and racism. I'll point out. Still, you build a life, you build a career, a reputation. Not only that, you put that career on the line in service to the country itself, developing technology, consulting on the military's future plans. Now they're accusing you of high treason without a shard of evidence. This is how they repay you. And let's be abundantly clear: there was not a single piece of evidence showing Chen to be a traitor, passing secrets, conspiring with the enemy, and so on. Of course, Chen felt humiliated. He was furious. So, feeling unwelcome in the U.S.—I mean, deeply unwelcome. Chen eventually decides to leave for China. His father is sick. They correspond regularly, except Caltech wants him to stay. Here's Zouyu. So the Caltech、uh, administration want to help Chen to get back his security clearance. Again, they felt that you know he was not a Communist Party member. Any doubts about his loyalty was misplaced. But also, Caltech had a friend. Dan Kimball, who was the then I think Assistant Secretary of the Navy, who had been part of the group that set up Aerojet under Feng Kamen as the president, so he was friends with Feng Kamen and with Chen too. Indeed, Kimball knew Chen very well. So Caltech wanted Chen to talk to Kimball to ask Kimball to help to restore his security clearance. Here's what happens. Chen denies publicly being a communist. He's got plans to go to China to see his father, and now, somewhat reluctantly, he has to go to D.C. to basically beg for his security clearance to be restored. Let's call this phase two. According to Zhou Yu, even more trouble starts when Chen mentions the China trip to Kimball. Kimball tries to talk him out of it. He's afraid Chen has been so insulted by the whole experience, so frustrated with the FBI, etc., that he may never come back. That's the part of the conversation that alarmed、uh, Kimball. After Chen left, Kimball called the U.S. Department of Justice. Asking them to do whatever it took to prevent Chen from leaving the U.S. because he was too valuable, and that's how Chen winds up basically in handcuffs, arrested for "quote unquote" smuggling out allegedly classified material. According to Kimball, all he wanted to do is just some kind of soft measure to make it impossible for Chen to go visit China. But what he did not know was the U.S. Uh, Department of Justice, especially the Immigration and Naturalization Service, the INS, actually had acquired an arrest warrant for Chen in the days after this. So when Chen stepped off the plane from Washington D.C., he was served a notice that prohibited him from leaving the country. This is also when U.S. Customs discovers the books and papers Chen had wanted to take with him to China. 
Now, according to Chen's FBI file, these items contain, quote, confidential and, quote, restricted research on nuclear science, atomic rockets, and jet propulsion. Chen said at the time he had already gone through these papers and left what was classified in a locked cabinet in his office at Caltech. According to him, the ones he traveled with were personal papers for lecturing and study. Also, does it matter that most of these documents were declassified or out of date? Nope. The U.S. was worried about Chen giving China any technological advantage. And all this led to the serving of the arrest warrant on Chen, I think in September 1950. So he was detained in San Pedro, in the INS facility in San Pedro, which is the south of L.A., in the island, for about two weeks. Which brings us to phase three. Chen is arrested, searched, then driven to a little island off San Pedro, California. It's a federal correction facility. And his time in prison is rough. Von Karman tries to reach him, calling from Europe, but he's not allowed. According to the FBI file, the immigration officers don't let Chen talk to anyone. Also, the guards switch his lights on and off every 10 minutes so he can't sleep at night. Chen said later the stress of it all caused him to lose 30 pounds in 15 days. Eventually, he's released on $15,000 bail. Caltech had arranged for a wealthy friend of Chen to foot the bill. And then the hearings. The determination whether or not he poses a risk to the country lasts the next four years. One of the military higher-ups suggested detaining Chen until his latest research was no longer useful to China, which may explain why the hearings took so long. During that time, Chen's life is utterly reduced. He's barred from traveling outside of Los Angeles. Friends who call him get interrogated by the FBI. Meanwhile, he notices agents tailing him, opening his mail. Agents follow his wife whenever she leaves the house. Basically, Chen's living in purgatory. Here's Yan Luo. I think it's kind of nonsense in a way. Of course, uh, it helps people simplify. Of uh, You can simplify bad guy, good guy. You know, you don't need to study the detail and so on. And it's kind of stupid in that way. You know, if it wasn't McCarthy time, I would have imagined Chen probably already reached, you know, world top aerodynamic scientist, you know, in the world, work on the moon project and so on. So it's a pity that way. And it destroyed the career, not only the guy's career, but the, for the best interest of the United States. It, it's kind of silly. Another heart-wrenching part of the story is a letter Chen sends to Frank Molina in France. It's December 8th, 1954. By this point, Molina has become an artist. He spends his days painting. Meanwhile, Chen feels harassed constantly. He writes, Do you expect anyone in the Caltech administration will harm their future, or at least they think they will, for the sake of truthfulness to history? Do you believe in history at all? knowing that it is rewritten all the time? Do you think there is justice and honesty in this part of the world? Do you expect to be famous and honored in the USA without being your own public relations man or without having a public relations man under your employ? 
dear friend, let us not believe in fictions. You are now in creative work, so why let such trivial matters bother you? After all, wouldn't it be nice to be able to tell one's conscience during one's last days that he has given more to humanity than he has received from humanity in return? That last line, it breaks your heart. So how does Chen finally return to China? The Wang Johnson talks. They were a behind-the-scenes chess game between mainland China and the United States. And Chen is the most valuable piece on the board. The talks are named for Chinese Ambassador Wang Pyongnan and American Ambassador Yu Alexis Johnson. It's a series of negotiations between the United States and China about prisoners captured during the Korean War, prisoners in both countries. Iris Cheng has a terrific detailed account of the talks in her book about Chen called Thread of the Silkworm. Basically, it culminates with President Eisenhower deciding to send Chen back to China at China's request. So, September 1955, Chen and his family board a ship bound for Hong Kong. At the time, rumors fly around that in exchange for Chen, China released a dozen U.S. airmen who had been held captive since the Korean War. We don't know exactly what happened, and the State Department naturally denies this. Whatever happened, Premier Zhou Enlai, the first premier of the People's Republic, later says of the negotiations, we had won back Chen Shu Shen. That alone made the talks worthwhile. By the way, remember Dan Kimball, Caltech's man in the Navy, who tried to prevent Chen from leaving? He says, quote, It was the stupidest thing this country ever did. Chen was no more a communist than I was, and we forced him to go. So the United States boots out its world-renowned expert in ballistic missile design and sends him packing to communist China, where he designs the country's ballistic missile program. For example... On October 27, 1966, China announces the successful explosion of a missile with a nuclear warhead. The person credited for this milestone? Chen. Von Karman noted in his autobiography, in a scant 10 years, the former Caltech scientist made China a potential missile power. Years later... In 2003, Chen watches China's first manned spaceflight on television, a rocket whose launch relied on his research. I have to imagine it felt pretty sweet, not to mention a far cry from those early days with von Karman in Europe, trying to figure out how the Nazis got their rockets off the ground. Yes, the same Nazis that were welcomed into the United States with open arms. In the next episode, we'll get to the Nazis. We'll see how, while the U.S. government was slandering Chen and Frank Molina, it was also secretly hiring former Nazis in one of the more baffling programs in aerospace history. It was known as Operation Paperclip, and it was a doozy. That's next on Blood, Sweat, and Rockets.
L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets is hosted by me, M.G. Lord. The show is a production of Alea Studios in collaboration with Western Sound. Shana Naomi Crockmall is our vice president of podcasts, and Antonia Sarahito is the executive producer for Alea Studios. Ben Adair is the executive producer for Western Sound. Dan Leone is the showrunner. Producers are Savannah Wright, Tyler Hill, Caitlin Parker, and Becky Nicolaitis. The show is written by Rachel Knowles, Rosecrans Baldwin, and me, M.G. Lord. It was edited by Savannah Wright. Sound design by Tyler Hill. Mixing and mastering by Tom McLean. Research and consulting by History Studio. Our website at alaus.com is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital marketing teams at Alaus Studios. The marketing team of Alaus Studios created our branding. Thanks to the team at Alaus Studios, including Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, and Leo G. L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets is a production of Alaus Studios. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. Hey, it's Brian, the host of the How to LA podcast. How about we go to the movies? Join us for a 10-part series, Revival House, and discover the magic of LA's indie theaters. Who knows? You might meet someone. I know it sounds antithetical because you're just sitting passively, but in fact, you're connecting with everyone else around you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts.